Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I hear from Caroline Wu, a former Vietnamese refugee in California, as she tells of a journey aboard the people smuggling freighter, the Senon, in May 1979. As you'll hear from her story, it may be 40 years ago, and she was a young girl at the time, but the memories remain strong and emotional. Caroline Wu is one of more than 200,000 Vietnamese who came by boat across the South China Sea to Hong Kong to seek sanctuary. Some would be in camps here for years before either going to a third country or being repatriated. In her case, she was here for six months. Her account features in a new book by former Marine Police Commander Les Bird, where, after digging out his photographs of that era, he started to talk to other former colleagues who also brought out theirs. Their photographs in the accounts of former Marine Police, Vietnamese refugees and those who were repatriated make up the book Along the Southern Boundary, published by Blacksmith Books. I'll be returning to talk to some of the former officers who were on that southern boundary in the new year, but in today's programme I focus on Caroline Wu's story of her Senon voyage. Les Bird had a very personal connection with this vessel. He was the officer on site when this people-smuggling freighter literally crashed into a Lantau beach after the crew abandoned the vessel and the 1,400 refugee passengers in Macau. The crew from that, the Taiwanese crew, had obviously learned by reading the newspapers that the crews of the other two ships had been arrested and charged with people smuggling offences and were in prison in Hong Kong waiting trial. So what they did was they brought the ship outside of the southern boundary off Macau. They then arranged for a small boat to pick them up and take their gold, their payment, for, for, for bringing these people. There were 1,400 people on the Senon and they disappeared into Macau and they left the refugees on board the Senon. They pointed towards uh, Western Lantau and they said, that's Hong Kong, all you've got to do is steer this boat into those waters and the Marine Police will be there and you'll be looked after and you will all become refugees and everything will be fine. The problem was, when, as they arrived into Hong Kong waters south of Lantau, they realised they actually didn't physically know how to stop the ship. They, could st they figured out how to steer it, but couldn't stop it. So the first piece of sand or beach that they saw, which was Loke 1 on the southern western tip of Lanta, they steered the boat into Loke 1 and at full speed rammed, it, rammed the beach. And it's about a 300-yard-long beach. And they completely cut it in two with the bows of the ship. The ship went straight up the beach and straight into the undergrowth. And then it started to capsize to one side, which was a dangerous part. Now... Uh, my involvement was I just happened to be in a police jeep on the South Lantai Road on the other side of the hill when this happened. So I got a radio call saying there's something happened at Loke 1. Marine police are on the way. If you can get there now, uh, you might be able to help. So I scrambled over the hill onto the beach. I happened to be the first one there. Marine police were still lowering themselves into small boats to come ashore. Um, so there was me and 1,400 people uh, and I was trying to round them up. And, of course, there were several things to think about. One, only the young people had managed to get off, uh, which meant the the older people, m women and children, were still on and they were still in the cargo hold, and the ship was tilting over to the starboard side. So it, was, it looked like it might capsize and, and, and quite possibly some of it sink. So there was that to think about. And also I didn't realise that the, at that time the crew had actually left the ship. So I was 
looking for the crew. I wanted to arrest the crew because I realised that this was obviously people smuggling. So I was running up and down the beach trying to save people and trying to arrest people and uh, eventually, of course, other marine resources arrived and, and, and helped me out and, and then, then we, we got it all under control. But the thing was, they'd been crammed into these cargo holds and uh, it, the conditions inside were awful and a lot of them just couldn't get out on their own. So we had to gradually try and uh, evacuate the ship before it capsized. Ever said on the fact that you were personally there meant also, um, and that's quite an account in your book along the southern boundary, you've got some photographs from that time actually where you can actually see uh, on a somewhat grainy photograph but you can actually see people clambering down the sides in order to get off into the shallows and uh, uh, very, uh, you know, exciting and traumatic for them, you know, just literally crashing into this beach. The extraordinary thing is you're busy with your 1,400 people there and documenting them, but there's a man who was on the beach and he remembers you. Yeah, uh, a guy called Kang, Kang Dang. He was a soldier in the South Vietnamese Army and he'd been in hiding in Vietnam um, since 1975, the end of the war. And so now, 1979, he was making a break for it with his, his new young wife, Yen, and he was one of the young ones who managed to get ashore and he read my first book a small band of men about two years ago in which there's a chapter about the senon and he wrote to me and said i was actually on that beach at the same time as you and he claims he recognized he, he remembered me i guess if you think about it one Caucasian running around trying to do things, you, you quite possibly would remember him. And he, he wrote to me and said, uh, I remember you, um, we stood on the beach uh, 40 years ago at the same time, and uh, since then we've, we've built up a friendship, and I've put his story in the book, and he's introduced me to several other people who were on that ship, and their record, their, their own stories are in the, in the book too. From a different perspective, not just your work, it's interesting to think that Kang Dang... He escapes as a young man with his wife, um, but is pre previously uh, an army officer. You must, you must both be a similar age. Yeah, uh, he's a year older than me. Yeah. Could you see yourself ever meeting? Yeah, yeah. We've which we were going to meet pre-COVID. Um, I was going over to. He, he got relocated because he was a. Um, uh, he worked for the Americans. He was in the South Vietnamese Army. He was scooped up very, very quickly and given residency in California. Um, and there was an initial idea to, that I would go and meet him. Uh, that's been put on hold for two years. But now, uh, in March, I do have a reason to go over to, to California, and we've arranged to meet. And uh, he's going to introduce me to the Vietnamese community there, many of whom came through Hong Kong. So it should be quite, uh, I don't know, actually, what to expect. <laughs> we were in the refugee camp. Um, I think it was as Kaitak. Right. Uh, yeah. Yes. And then you but, moved straight out to California or? Yes, we did. My father sponsored us. So he came before we did. And then so um, we were going to meet up with him, but somehow we were not able to. And he left to America. And we have cousin that lives in Taiwan. And he reached out to them and he asked them to please keep an eye on some of the refugees that are coming in in Hong Kong because there's a lot of news of refugee escaping. So then my cousin would every day call each camp location site and ask, inquire about about us. 
giving our, our names and stuff. And then one day she found us. And so she came down, you know, um, and made contact with my mom. And then from then on, she went back and let my father know about it. And then my father sponsored us. And that's how you went. So was it, is it, are you an only child or you had brothers and sisters? No, I have a little brother. He is like, uh, he's four years younger than I am. So he was like a little, he was a little baby at that time. <laughs> a toddler. Now in uh, Les Bird's book, Along the Southern Boundary, you describe very much your experience as a young child. You're about age seven when you're on the Senon. Yeah, actually. Yeah, well, my mom remember always remembers me as seven. I was at that month in April. I just turned eight. But still, you know, I, I, we'd never celebrate any. I don't remember ever celebrating a birthday or even mention of a birthday because it was just too much things going on at that time so I was still very young and I you know that was not even you know part of our in our mind at all at that time when you're on the Senon I mean you describe you know very cramped conditions also you know the the water that you had to drink can you um, share some of those memories that you describe in the book yes so when we first got on we were assigned to the lower deck and it was really cramped. My mom had to like kind of crawl in and then she found a space lean against the wall of the ship. And then we, my brother and I kind of lean against her. There was, everybody was pretty packed. We were packed like sardine in there. It was kind of really stuffy, difficult to breathe. But as a child, I don't seem to mind too much. I'm sure my mom was was not, it was very hard and difficult for her. And was it your first time at sea? Yes, it was. It was our first time at sea. And I didn't know how to swim at that time. It was quite scary. Um, I think most the entire time I was scared were or you, numb, kind of. And were you seasick? I don't remember being seasick. I remember very tired, very hungry. Uh, I remember at first we had some food that my grandmother made that morning. Um, cause my cousin said, don't bring anything. There's no room. You just have to just get a little bit of things and just leave. And so we went to my, my grandparents home and to say goodbye and to pick up my aunt, uncle and my two cousin also that went with us. And my grandmother that morning, she made some dry bread and some rice cake. Um, basically they're just rice that are, you know, mushed up into a ball. Or sometimes they're flattened, and then sometimes um, she would kind of stain it flavor with uh, flagrant banana leaf, and it turned kind of like a green color. And then she said to take it with us. And my mom was like, no, I can't. There's no room. And then mom thought that there would probably be some kind of food, or I don't know what she was thinking, actually, but she think that there would be something for us. But my grandmother insist. She said, you have to take it. I spent all morning, and you might not have any food to eat. And thank God my mom did. She took some, not all of them, but she took some, which gave us some food to eat for the first few days. And then we ran out of food after that. I don't, honestly don't remember what we ate after that. But we, the water that we drank was from a oil, like a barrel. It was, so it was tainted with oil. It was very difficult to drink. My cousin, she had some, you know, maxi pad. So she used that 
to filter the water, so make it more bearable. So that was kind of <laughs> that was kind of a highlight for the, the the drinking. And of course, this would have been the, was this the last time you saw your grandparents? Yes, that was the last time I saw my grandparents. And、yeah. how how did your brother cope? He was three or four years younger than you. He, when I asked him if he remember anything, he said he doesn't. He doesn't want to know anything about it. He doesn't want to remember or recall anything about it. But I remember him having difficulty eating the food, drinking the water, having, you know, always stomach problem. Mom was always he was always by my mom's side, so we were always by her side most of the time. Once in a while, we would she would take us up up deck to stretch our leg, and then we would go back down. Sometimes we we can't even lay down. There's no room to lay down. We're exhausted. We want to lay down. I wanted to lay down. There was one day, there was a space, and I go. I was so happy. I wanted to lay down, but my cousin stopped me because there was a puddle of pee. She said, "You can't. There's pee." And I'm like, I felt. Oh my gosh, I was so tired. I really wanted to lay down. I couldn't because you know it was all people. Peeing there, leaving it there, or peeing from above deck down. When they walked, the sand would fall onto your head. Did you know where you were going? No, I did not know where I was going. Allah, I don't think my mom. I asked my mom, and she doesn't know either. She said it was a chance to take, and she was going to do it anyway. We we're going to do it. We did not know where we we're going. She said that she was depressed. Most of the time on the ship, she, because we we do not know we're gonna live or die.、Mm, I have no idea. I just follow, whatever you know, as I was instructed to sit, to walk, to to go wherever. So there were fourteen hundred, so one thousand four hundred refugees on board. Now, aside from your family, did you know anybody else? Were there sort of people from your town or from? Yes,、um, we have a lot of cousins that were on there. Actually, they were a little bit. They were more wealthy. We didn't have the money, so we actually borrow money from them in order to pay for our way to get on that ship. Where were you?、Um, where were you traveling from in Vietnam? We were in Yongtao, in Vietnam. So we were in Yongtao, and we that morning we went to a place called. Mom said it was. It was a.、Uh, Quan Chi or Quan Chi or something like that. It was like kind of a little, a little dock. There's a field of grass, and there's ship that would come in. And over the night, we thought that we would get on the ship that night, that day, but instead we had to stay, like out in the open. Some people, I guess, had some shelter. We were just laying on the ground、uh, till the next morning. There was just hundreds of us on the ground sleeping. With mosquito bites and everything, and I remember getting up in the morning. There was water. There was some bucket of water, and a toothbrush. People were sharing, giving, giving us some water and stuff, and we were just sharing stuff, sharing water, sharing toothbrush to use to clean ourselves before we get onto the onto the、uh, ship or the freighter. How long did it take you to come to Hong Kong? Honestly, as a child. I can't really remember time and space, you know, times and date too much. Yes. But it felt so long, and after reading, you know, the books and my mom, it seemed like、um, I don't know about close to a month. 
Yes, because approximately. You, I think you're yeah. you're grounded on. Uh, um, are you grounded on Hainan Island for a while too? Yes, we did about two weeks or so. We um, what happened was that there was some reef. I guess we caught onto it, and it punctured a hole in the ship, and we were actually on that level when where the water was gushing in, and I remember my mom grabbing my brother holding him and then holding my arm my hand leading me up to this wooden stairway and um and this man because everybody was you know like people just start jumping up a whole bunch of men start jumping up and try to plug this hole this water that was just coming out coming up it was like this it's like like a fire hydrant kind of like but not to the extent that it was high up but it was like maybe three feet high or so gushing out of the boat and the man the man said to my mom where are you going lady there's nowhere to go just sit down my mom was just like saying well i have two kids i need to go i need to to get to i need to take care of them i need to say you know take them to safety and she and he said there's nowhere to go we're working on it to sit down i remember looking back and um there's just a moment of just complete like my life was in slow motion at that point for a few seconds. And I looked back to the sea of just faces staring back at me, so exhausted, so lifeless, hopeless. People were just sitting everywhere. People were on beams with their leg hanging and arms grabbing onto the, to the beam. So truly there was no place to go. So we sat down and just wait. No, so finally, about 30, approximately 30 minutes later, they they plugged the hole up approximately that i just kind of assumed that it's 30 minutes it seemed that like yeah it's very frightening for a seven-year-old yeah it was it was um i i remember being always afraid it was just in a constant state of fear and sometime numbness there i have like period of very clear memory and period where i just don't remember anything i just yeah. When you left Hainan, when the boat has been fixed, you leave Hainan and you're heading for Hong Kong. Were you below decks when they, you know, I mean, I understand from Les Bird and from, from accounts of the Senon that the crew abandons the Senon in Macau. They head off in a small boat and then it's up to the passengers on the Senon to drive the boat into Hong Kong waters. And... Uh, how aware were you of what was going on, or were you below deck? So, um, when we were in um, Hainan, the government actually took some of our money to repair the boat, and they took it to another part of the island to repair, and then they brought it back. And I remember that that morning that we had to get back onto the boat. So I did not know where we were going. All I knew is that we had to walk for a very long, long distance on this on the beach, along the beach for a very long time. I did not know where we were going. And then I saw the boat or the ship. And I was like, oh my God, in my head, do we have to get back on that again? Mm. I didn't want to get back on that thing. And my, I asked my mom, I said, do we have to get back on it? And she goes, yeah, we do. I just like, my heart just sunk. I was like, oh God. But okay, so we went on, but this time I didn't, stay below deck we stay on the second level which was better because um 
there was we were closer to the stair so in the daytime we can at least see the the sun beaming down the stair and get some fresh air so that was a little bit better but it was still very cramped my mom once again had to like crawl just to get to the seat you know and um yeah and then when you start to approach Lantau so the as I say the crew is abandoned it was extraordinary the the crew abandons the Senon aware that the two previous crews of two people smuggling boats that had come in uh, over the previous few months had uh, the crews had been arrested so they're trying to make a getaway but they leave the people on the Senon to drive the boat or the vessel into Hong Kong waters and uh, so they actually crash it into the beach on Lo Ke Wang in Lantau. And uh, how much do you remember of that? Yes, um, I remember it was chaotic. People would start shouting. There was just rushing, getting off, people rushing, getting off the boat. The younger, the like, those that are strong and capable can swim, they would jump the ship because the instruction was for them to jump and to get on shore so that they will be accepted by Hong Kong because we do not want to go back into back again. That ship cannot, it cannot sail again. It will not survive that journey. We cannot go anymore. This is it for us. So they we were instruct that if you are capable, jump and swim ashore. And so, and then the rest, and I remember climbing down the staircase it was rustic, it was old, and then there was people following behind me, and then it was just rushing, rushing. So you're on a metal ladder? People. Yeah, it was a ladder of some sort. So I start going down this ladder, and all of a sudden it just stopped, it just ended. It's like, it's broken. So you're hanging off the and side was, of the ship? Yes, I was hanging off the side of the ship, and, um, and I didn't want to go further. My cousin was in the water at that time. So she, she told me to just come on down, just keep going and, you know, jump. And actually, I didn't want to. And then she said, it's okay, I got you. Just jump, it's okay. You know, and then I looked up and I see all these people are coming down. I have to, I have to. So I let go. And then I just kind of blacked out at that point. I don't remember what happened. The next thing I remember was that I heard a faint sound of her, my name. She called my name faintly. I kind of heard it and then I didn't respond. And then she called me again and then she shook my hand, which was around her neck. And then I woke up from that. And then I found myself in the middle of what halfway to the beach and halfway from the ship because I looked back. And I saw we were halfway in the middle of this water and I was on her back. And she told me to just hang on tight. And then I was kind of afraid to grab her too hard by her neck because I didn't want to choke her. And she said, it was okay, it's okay, just hold on, just hold on. And then she swam the entire way to shore. Gosh, where, where was your brother and mother at this point? I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure, I'm not sure. It was just chaotic. I, I didn't even know my cousin was down there until I, until she called me to jump. It was just, I have no idea. How did you feel when but, you got on shore? Um, I feel better, definitely, than being in the water because I was really scared. 
and then oh I I was actually happy I think because um my mom we were united with my mom my brother my cousin my aunt and my uncle yeah we were we were happy to be on shore definitely you were seven eight years old it happened in 1979 when you're telling me about this how, how sharp does it feel in your memory is it does it feel like over 40 years ago um actually does it feel like that not really it does at some time at some time no when i describe the event where how i see the people the face those are very clear to me mm. and it didn't seem like 40 years ago when I'm in that water, doesn't feel like 40 years ago. You know, it it was it's pretty. Yeah, I'm amazed it was that long ago. Honestly, when you and Les started communicating about that experience, uh, was that a kind of welcome thing to be able to express it? Was it a sense of release to talk about it, or are some things better forgotten? Oh no, I, I I'm glad we talked about it. We should. I wish more people would like some I, I asked my mom things because she would remember more than I would and there are times she would talk and there are times she refused to and I have cousin or aunt who I asked question and she said I don't want to talk about that period of time I don't want to think about it I don't want to remember anything about it but I think it is I think we should talk so you would, after, what happens to you then? You're on that beach. You're then collected by marine police vessels. So when we got there um, that day, we were collected by the marine that night. It was late at night. It was a big shift. One of the ships, what they call like um, a war loading ship. Is that why? Is that what they call it? Where like the mouth kind of open up and then you can move lots of people and even tank onto it. I remember it was a like a, a military ship. The soldier came, and um, it was late at night that night. And the soldier, I remember, carried my brother at one on one arm and carried me on the other arm up that ship. And then it was too crowded, so he went back. We went back onto the beach, and we sat there and waited. And then he whistled, entertaining us. And I thought that was one of the nicest moments of my journey. That was one of the best moments. Yeah. It, it felt nice to have someone actually care for us, you know, taking us somewhere to safety and sitting there being with us, whistling the song to us, sitting there. My brother on his right side and I was on his left side looking out into the ocean. It was really nice. So you were six months at Kaitak camp. Mm-hmm. And then do you remember hearing that you were going somewhere else? I heard from my mom that we were going to go to um, to America. So we got our belonging, whatever we have, which is not much. So we went on an airplane. But before that, I think there was a nun that came by just to wish us safe travel. My thanks to Caroline Wu and Les Bird talking about the Senon, the third people smuggling freighter that came to Hong Kong in May 1979 and is an account in Les Bird's new book, 
along the southern boundary, a subject I'll be returning to in the new year. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.